Americans. This is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute. Good day. Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Urbane Cowboys podcast. I'm Josiah Neely of the R Street Institute. And I'm Doug McCullough of the Lone Star Policy Institute. If you enjoy today's show, please subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud and leave a five-star review. Today, we're going to be talking electricity with Devin Hartman of Elcon, and we'll find out how electricity is like Uber. Our guest today is Devin Hartman, who is the incoming president of Elcon, a association of electric consumers is that, do i have that right yes Large the electricity electric. consumers resource council mm-hmm. there you go okay <laughs> well welcome to the show all That's right nice. thank so you. you 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 already answered my first question all right so i want to talk about a couple things first off earlier this summer there was an announcement by the trump administration that they were going to be bailing out uneconomical coal and nuclear plants people waited and waited but the actual order to do this never came and now the reporting is that the idea has been kind of shelved. Can you give us a little bit of background about what exactly this proposal was and, and how it developed? Sure. So it really has its roots uh, going back to the, the early days uh, of, the, of the Trump administration when, as we can all recall very, um, very crisply, there was a, a you know, promise to help the coal industry. And that is what culminated in a Department of Energy grid reliability study, um, which uh, which Josiah and I had shared notes on, um, you know, back when that emerged in late 2017. And then the DOE put in a notice of proposed rulemaking to FERC, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, to compensate coal and nuclear plants. And FERC promptly shut that down with a unanimous vote. And then came the sort of the, the option B, which was to use um, authority under the Federal Power Act and the Defense Production Act to bail out these struggling coal and nuclear plants in the name of national security. And so the administration went through a lot of rounds of trying to figure out what was a legally defensible route for doing so. Right. So, yeah. What was the what was the justification or proposed justification, I, I guess, given for bailing out? these plants is just you know we love coal uh (laughs) nukes are okay too it was generally done from a a grid reliability and resilience um, perspective and so resilience is an issue that was getting some conversation in sort of energy policy circles a couple years ago but um this administration has really taken it to another level and so let me let me stop you there for a second sure so uh what does resilience mean Maybe a trick question. I don't know. Yeah, absolutely. Everyone in the industry is still narrowing in on the definition, but I'll give you a couple components of it that tend to be the most popular. So traditionally with reliability, we just think about the, the likelihood of an electricity consumer having an outage, whereas resilience oftentimes seems to be focusing more on how quickly the system can bounce back from an event. And a secondary focus also seems to be on these sort of like fat tail events, these black swan events, things that markets don't necessarily fully internalize or supposedly don't fully internalize, things with exceptionally low probability but very high impact. So think of things that could be, you know, uh, you know, uh, anything from a cyber attack to, uh, you know, a, a, an act of God that results in service disruption over a large territory 
for you know weeks or even months at a time. A hurricane. So, go ahead. A hurricane. Yeah, hurricanes have been often uh, cited as part of this this grid resilience push, which is interesting because it's something we've always sort of dealt with. But you know, we can we can have events where power is out for for many days or, or even weeks as a response of a, of a of a major hurricane in some cases. So that has that has been the result. But the uh, the thing that's important to note is that it's mostly been the result of damage to the the wires, right? Transmission and distribution wires. Uh, not because it's knocked out power generation at, at power plants for extended periods of time. Right. Okay. So obviously, reliability is very important. Uh, resilience sounds like an important thing. But as you know, to the extent that we have issues there, they tend to be transmission related or distribution related. So how how did the administration try and link that up with coal and nuclear plants sp- specifically? So the, 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 the main jux of what they were arguing was that these power plants store fuel on site and therefore they are fuel secure. And therefore, if there's an, uh, an interruption in the supply line to get fuel there, uh, these plants can continue to operate for, for weeks on end. Um, whereas something like a natural gas plant or wind and solar uh, facilities uh, you know, rely on, on fuel that's delivered to them at the moment that power is produced. And so the fuel security argument was really the main crux of this whole thing. So I have a, I have a couple of questions. The first is, uh, what would be the, the cost? What are the estimates for the bailout itself? And, and what would be the, the effect on consumers for the bailout? Sure. So it's, it's really impossible to put like a very fine cost estimate because the administration never proposed a very specific mechanism. Uh, no one's ever done this before. <laughs> and so... There was a lot of uh, projection based on what mechanisms could be used, but roughly the annual cost estimates were anywhere from the single billions to tens of billions, and depending on the scale and the the manner in which they recovered those costs, um, probably from electricity consumers, your mandatory charges as opposed to to taxpayers. Um, And what we think would be more likely is that Because using such an obtuse mechanism to compensate so many plants is very difficult to do in practice, uh, we do think it would have cost tens of billions of dollars per year. Uh, So those are the costs, and while on the consumer side, um, we don't see uh, a problem that necessitates these bailouts whatsoever. So we, we would be receiving little to no benefit for very high costs, and these costs don't even account for the um, the, the damage it causes to investor confidence. The, the, the regions of the country that use competitive markets for power generation thrive on the, the confidence of the private sector to invest and be able to uh, recover their, uh, you know, their capital investments with a reasonable return. And once you start throwing around political interventions of this scale, uh, the cost to borrow capital go up, investor confidence and, and the mechanisms that drive innovation uh, really dry up. And so those costs are, aren't even quantified in the estimate I provided. We had a Vance Ginn of TPPF on the show recently, and we were talking about tariffs, and particularly the tariffs that are sort of being justified under the grounds of, of national security. And I believe that the, the, the coal and nuclear plant bailouts are being justified on the grounds of national security. What are the risks of sort of continually using national security as a grounds for various policy? Do, doesn't that 
raise certain alarms after doing it so many times? Yeah, absolutely. And I and I won't pretend to be a security expert, um, but I, I will say that I've talked to quite a few on this issue. And in this case, we're talking about using uh, national security arguments as a crux to pursue civilian industrial policy. And those two things do not mesh well. And there's some terrific op-eds out there by some, some former military officials that have spoken out on this, because once you start using things like the Defense Production Act, which was designed to address real needs under real threats that were, that were imminent or, or under, underway, um, once we start doing that on a pure conjecture basis uh, to serve really a side political agenda, then you start undermining the, the apparatus of, of, of using these mechanisms swiftly and effectively uh, in the event of a real uh, threat to national security. I know in the case of, uh, for instance, the steel tariffs, there were some uh, studies done that apparently the U.S. military only requires 3% of our, our steel production. Do you have any sense of what the, you know, the military needs would be when it comes to energy and, and sort of gauge how, how much energy, particularly you know, from coal, from nuclear, that the military really needs from a national security perspective. Sure. So I don't I don't have the numbers offhand of you know the percentage of all power consumption that the military consumes. Uh, the military is a very large energy consumer. Much of that is uh, liquid fuels for transport. Um, but on the electricity side, I'd say the the real national security thing that's a focus is that a lot of military base installations um, do rely on the civilian grid power, but I'll also emphasize that they usually have backup systems, and these backup systems are, are typically, or should be, much more robust than that backup generator that you see in a lot of suburban household garages. And if we really want to talk about taking national security uh, seriously for, for, for energy supply to military bases, we should be talking about on-site procurement. So in the event of any cause of service disruption on the bulk civilian power system, that these military bases can island themselves and self-generate for prolonged periods of time and, and have multiple system redundancies built in. And the cost of doing that across our military fleet would be a, would be a tiny fraction of what it would be to bail out a, a, you know, civilian power plants that are not profitable, and it would be incredibly more effective. Beyond national security per se, the president likes to talk about energy dominance. And in terms of these bailouts, do you think that they're actually necessary to ensure American independence or dominance, you know, in terms of bailing out these these sources of energy? No, I don't. I think there's some valid uh, issues that need to be evaluated with, um, with, with rapid retirement of, of coal and nuclear power plants, like the rules that, that govern market entry and exit. But we have to let these markets function as intended. Uh, you know, I represent U.S. manufacturers now. And manufacturing industry, if we want to see the type of renaissance in manufacturing um, from lower electricity prices that we would like to see kind of in parallel to what the natural gas industry has done for, for pulling down feedstock inputs for, for manufacturers. Um, we need to rely on market mechanisms to do that. And that's that's really the only path forward. So really energy dominance, I would say like the, 
the most American form of energy you can have is letting private capital be put at risk and not socializing risk on captive consumers, which is what the bailout would have done and which is frankly also what uh, regulated uh, monopoly models uh, do as well. Okay, let's turn now to one of my favorite subjects, which is Texas. So Texas is a bit unusual in that uh, we have a competitive electrical market. We don't have the monopoly model that you mentioned, at least for most of the state. Uh, And in fact, Texas, we even go further in that Texas doesn't have a a capacity market. Uh, What is a capacity market? You know, I think the easiest way to respond to this, Josiah, is to describe what Texas has and describe then why other states that have adopted the competitive structure have a capacity market. And then we can go from there. Yeah. So what Texas does is it has a spot market only. So it just has a market for delivered energy that reflects real-time supply and demand conditions. Right. You know, reflects, reflects those marginal costs and benefits that economists always like talking about. They find that equilibrium in real time. Now, what Texas does distinct from other markets is that they have a mechanism that also prices in uh, scarcity conditions very robustly. And so when there's a shortage of available operating reserves on the system in real time, there's a, a mechanism to price in the, the value of those uh, reserves, or really the shortage of those reserves in the market. And that sends a very potent price signal to providers of, of uh, power, you know, power plant owners, uh, as well as consumers. Uh, power plant owners really want to capture those high prices, so they have a very strong incentive to make sure their power plants are operating reliably. And then consumers can look at those prices and say, you know what? Uh, there's there's some there's a certain point here where I'm not willing to pay for electricity, so I'll curtail my consumption or shift it voluntarily, and that's a little bit more of the the pure organic model. Now, the other states, mostly in the Mid Atlantic and Northeast, that have also adopted competitive markets, have these energy you know spot markets as well. However, they have uh, price caps in place, and they also don't have robust scarcity pricing. Which means that if if the system's got a shortage of reserves, you don't see prices rise to reflect the value of those reserves. Which means that you need some other mechanism to make sure you have enough reserves. And so they use capacity markets. And capacity markets are simply a, a competitive auction where a central planner decides this is how much of a, a certain set of resources we're going to need at some future time period, and then they hold a competitive auction to procure that set of resources. Yeah, okay. So the analogy that I like to use here, and, and as a layman, let me know if this is accurate enough, uh, but I, I like to analogize it to uh, Uber, where if you have a period where there's a, a lot of people seeking rides, the way Uber does that is they have surge pricing, right? So the price goes up, encourages more drivers to come on uh, to the market, which is similar, I guess, to the way Texas does it. And the states that have the capacity market, it's more like, well, they've banned surge pricing. And so the way that they do it is they just pay a certain number of drivers to be on on the app, even if they don't have any rides just sitting around in case there's extra demand that they need. Is that roughly the idea that's a great analogy yeah you're, you're literally being paid to be available and as we can come back to at a later point in the conversation it's very difficult to verify 
whether someone is available and actually capable of providing the service that you really need, which is enough energy when you need it. So as I said, Texas, we got competitive generation. We don't even have a capacity market. Uh, And er earlier this year, I think there was a lot of concern expressed that the state was going to run into some major trouble this summer uh, when it got really hot, that there would not be sufficient capacity to meet demand. And we also, Texas has a lot of wind on the grid. Uh, the wind, of course, doesn't blow all the time. So there you know, were some alarm signals that uh, that was going to be an issue uh, as well. So spoiler, uh, how did that turn out? Sure. So the Texas system actually did things that were incredibly delightful. Uh, this summer. For one, they had this set of reserves that was in the neighborhood of 10%, which is fantastic. And in the rest of the country, you commonly see 20 plus percent. And it may make a lot of folks more comfortable to know there's more reserves. But when you recognize that somebody's got to pay for those reserves, then you start getting into the question of, all right, well, how do you balance the cost with the benefit of reserves? All the economic studies that have been done And a group called the Brattle Group just came out with a report that did a great job uh, highlighting this, saying, you know what, the the economically efficient reserve margin is probably around 9% in Texas. And so actually, Texas looks to be just a smidge ahead of the efficient level, whereas the rest of the country is forcing consumers uh, through capacity markets to pay for an excessive amount of reserves. And so what happened this summer is we saw... Uh, several periods where you had record demand, right? huge heat waves, and prices soared, and that encouraged power generators to make sure they were available. And sure enough, Texas had phenomenal performance from its power generation fleet this summer. Turns out, incentives matter. What's also interesting, and we don't have all the data in yet, is to what extent consumers responded to those price signals. And it, One thing that we have seen so far is that a lot of manufacturers and in some cases looks like some some big data centers and others uh, like grocers and some others that are starting to to do some on-site generation, they're starting to recognize that there's going to be periods of patterns and price spikes and they're going to either self-supply or voluntarily reduce their power consumption during those periods if the price signals make sense. And we've started to see this type of organic market activity really rear its head in Texas this summer, which is the closest thing to how an economist would draw up how to run an electricity system. And consumers, all behind it. Manufacturers absolutely love it. You hear a lot that wind is an unreliable source of power and we need to preserve baseload generation. How big of a concern is that? I would say we, we need to start getting kind of past this very simplistic framing of baseload generation versus variable versus even peaking to some degree because that's kind of a 1980s like central planners uh, lingo, if you will. What really matters is that the system procures the full set of, of services that are needed um, to, to keep the lights on commensurate with what consumers are willing to pay. And what wind does, of course, is that you know wind is is there sometimes, it's not there at other times, but it also tends to follow pretty predictable patterns in that, um, at least on a short-term basis, you know, we, we see patterns of you know, wind kind of dying off oftentimes during the, the heat in the summer, but then being more during the day and then being more robust in the evenings. 
And so what happens is that whenever wind as a source of supply is available, it tends to put more downward pressure on prices uh, you know, during these off-peak times on the system. As such, it doesn't really displace the, the price signal so robustly for on-peak generation. And so really what you're seeing is as more, if, if wind becomes more economic and more comes on the system, you start seeing more price movement uh, at different times of the day and under different conditions. And that encourages other supply resources to be more flexible. And frankly, we can, we can operate a system without a single conventional operation of a baseload uh, unit, and it can still be reliable. Again, we can keep ramping up and down power plants and turning on and off different units. Um, really, all baseload plants do is turn on and they produce power at a consistent output. They don't really adjust their output to max uh, fluctuations in, in other power plants or in uh, demand. And so it's important that we move past that kind of just preliminary mindset then to understand really how these resources participate. And if there's ever too much wind on the system uh, for the system to handle, then the grid operator will curtail that wind on the system. They can actually turn off the, the wind turbines or reduce their output. So we can economically integrate higher levels of wind. Um, the question is, is it's, it's, it just should be more market-driven and it should be less subsidy-driven. Yeah, totally agree on the subsidies. Uh, the, to go back to my Uber analogy, the way I kind of think about it is individual drivers are not on the platform all the time and any driver that's on the platform could drop off at any moment. However, if someone said, well... Therefore, we need to have these uh, baseload taxis, you know, uh, you know, in standby, right? Because this Uber, these Uber, Uber drivers are unreliable. I, I think we'd recognize that that's kind of a special pleading. Uh, what we really care about is that the overall system is reliable and uh, price signals, uh, you know, having prices make supply meet demand is the way you deal with that, not trying to favor a particular energy source. Absolutely. When, when we, we, the more we have these kind of out-of-market reserves, uh, the more idle assets we have sitting around, which means you have a lot of capital expenditures going out there and it's not being utilized very well. And that means that someone's paying for that once again. And uh, if we want to make sure that you know, U.S. manufacturing is as competitive as it can be and that you know, families um, have, are seeing downward pressure on their, their power bills at the same time the grid's getting cleaner, we have to make sure that the price signals are, are healthy uh, in these spot markets, and then really government should just get out of the way. Okay, so last question, kind of bigger picture, because we've been talking about some specific issues. Uh, these are kind of issues that um, are new to a lot of conservatives, I think. But what you know, how do you think conservatives ought to think about energy policy and uh, electricity? Uh, in particular? Yeah, so I think from sort of a a conservative perspective, I'd I'd emphasize two things. One is competitive markets are in our blood, right? But also uh, good governance is in our blood too. And we've seen a consistent pattern in in different types of uh, approaches taken to date. So one is the simple industry structure that you alluded to, right? Regulated monopolies uh, versus competitive markets. Regulated monopolies have no economic discipline. Uh, the, the role of the regulator is supposed to substitute for competition. Historically, that hasn't worked very well. It hasn't been egregious by international standards, 
but it's really stifled innovation and it's kept costs unnecessarily high. Whereas when we started implementing competitive markets, we started to see big gains in efficiencies and a whole bunch of innovation uh, around the margins, and that's really added up. And so from a conservative perspective, we should recognize um, and do what we do best and say, you know, what, what's the role of government? You know, the role of government is just to make sure that competitive markets are functioning well. That's it. Not to, not to say, hey, we know better than competitive markets. Uh, we're going to pick this resource or that resource. Nonsense. And then the other thing is getting back to, to good governance. Um, you know, we've seen some challenges with uh, some se severe challenges and well-documented uh, problems uh, with, with regulated monopolies um, and that model where basically the business model for the utility is to receive favorable regulatory treatment. Right? They have captive customers. They're not fighting for market share. They're fighting for favorable regulatory treatment. And that has led to some problematic practices, uh, some of which have been public. Our guest today has been Devin Hartman. Thank you very much for joining us.